You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Today we are going to talk about the story of this week's Torah reading, Rivka and her relationship with her sons, Yaakov and Esav. Many times we hear stories of people who get excited about or enthusiastic about any idea, any religion, any type of behavior. Or somebody that says, you know, you got to exercise and all of a sudden goes all the way in extreme and then they collapse, whatever it may be. Or even people that become religious and then all of a sudden they run into it and there's not any direction and, you know, and they're doing everything and they don't talk to anybody and they don't, you know, whatever it may be. Anything extreme, not in any certain direction, automatically has backlash. Anything that there's too much of that is not handled or not mastered or not used in a certain quantification or is not proportioned and put into a proper vessel, if you want to call it, it breaks the vessel or it overflows and makes a big mess. And because of that, in every situation we are told, and in every direction in life, whether it comes to a medical issue, you don't just read everything that it says online and do take every single medicine that's out there. You go to a doctor and they give you a certain, um, what it may be, system of what you have to approach and then what you do to be able to tackle the issue. The same ideas in religion. You go to a rabbi or to a, somebody, a mentor, who's able to show you and direct you how to go about the different um, issues or not only that direction of what you're supposed to do and how you should be able to take on this new excitement and new passion that you have. And as passionate as you may be and as great as you may be, and as great as the passion may be and as holy and as virtuous it may be, if it's not with direction, it can explode and fall in the wrong way. What are we talking about over here? Isn't this week's Torah reading. Rivka was over here, saw that her son, and we're going to get to it in the details in a moment, she was seemingly taking away the blessings that was meant to go to one child and give it to another child. And our question on the forefront is, just on the face of everything is, just last week we read about this kind little Rivka who was giving water to the camels and helping every stranger. All of a sudden her own child, she deceives him of his, of his blessing and gives it to another child, showing seemingly a sign of favoritism. Not only that, the question even goes more about because the question affects, if we want to call it the first non-Jew ever to exist or not even non-Jew, but the first Jew who abrogated the tradition. He was the first Jew who was given the task, who was brought up as a Jew to a Jewish mother and a Jewish father, though technically the concepts in terms of Judaism has not yet applied. But he was considered a Yehudi Mumur, which means a Jew who gives up his Judaism. Esav. But this Esav is considered evil. He's called Esav Arasha, the evil Esav. And because of that, of his behaviors, of what he's done, and how he behaved. But it's not only an ace of the past, but it's also in every single one of us, we have tendencies, we have issues, we have different ways of beliefs. And the question that we're going to learn from today is, how do we deal with these extreme type of behaviors within ourselves or with people around us? And therefore we come to the questions and we ask, number one, how can a good Jewish mother take away a blessing from one child and give it to another child? If she really wanted to take the blessing, first of why then she could have just told her husband, like every good Jewish wife does, tells her husband what to do, and she would have listened. 
And not only that, even if she didn't tell him, why did it have to be through trickery? She could have influenced him, told him, can why through the conniving type of behavior? And even more so, why even afterwards, just because she deceives and thinks that all of a sudden Esav is going to put, Yaakov is going to put on Esav's clothing, as we'll soon explain, is that automatically going to change the whole paradigm? If I decide tomorrow to put on Elon Musk's shirt, will I be a billionaire? No. <laughs> Just because he put on Esav's blessings or shirts, so automatically he's going to get the blessings. If the blessings are intended for Esav, will go to Esav. If it's intended for Jacob, will go for Jacob. What's happening in here in this story? And even more so, if we look even a little deeper into the concept, just a few generations before, Abraham and Sarah had a similar conflict. Abraham loved Yishmael as well. Sarah felt that Yishmael was having a bad influence on Isaac and therefore said, get rid of Yishmael. What did God tell her? The most profound verse that every Jewish woman loves to hear, everything your wife says, listen. Whatever Sarah says, listen to her. So Abraham was already told by Sarah, Abraham was told by Sarah, get rid of Yishmael. God said, listen to Sarah, get rid of Yishmael. Over here, Yitzchak and Rivka should have followed in kind. Rivka was told Yitzchak what to do. It has to do for the education of her children. And he should have listened. Why wasn't there a conversation? Why didn't they talk to each other about this? Why was there this deception, this conniving, as we'll soon go into the depth of the story of what was happening here, which makes even the story even greater. And what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at a commentary from the second Chabad Rebbe, the son of the first Chabad Rebbe, the middle Rebbe he's known, where he talks about the source, the root of who Esav was. That in fact, Rivka today was not trying to steal or to give the blessings to the other, but in fact, Rivka was trying to appoint a mentor, a trustee, to make sure that, Jake, that Esav gets the proper blessings as well. And Ezra's going to see that how it had to be done because Rivka knew something that Isaac did not know. Rivka knew how to channel the energy of a person that's full of passion. She was able to identify and recognize that passion without a vessel to contain it is just going to explode. And therefore she was the container and she was going to appoint a container and create a container and a containment for this actual blessing that Rivka was going to get, that Esau was going to get. So let's start from the beginning, analyze the story, and then get to the bottom line of how it all involved. So where's the beginning? The beginning begins where Yitzchak is 123 years old. When he's 123 years old, he starts preparing for his death. Not because he's 123, those days people lived a little longer, but he knows that his mother died at 127. And the Talmud tells us that a person, when it comes to their time of passing, when it comes to the time that their parents passed, they start thinking about their passing as well. And therefore Yitzchak knows that his mother passed at 127. And therefore he says, I have to start thinking about my passing. And he calls in his children, and he calls in his son Esav, and he says, go get me some food before I leave, before I leave this world. He was putting his things in order. And therefore he says, go get me some food and you'll get me some food, you'll bring it to me and I'll have a delicious lunch like I love and then I will bless you before I die. Rebecca hears what's going on. Rivka hears that he's about to bless his son Jacob and Rebecca says, you know what? She tells her younger son Jacob, go get the clothing 
that Esav, that I have from Esav, and put them on, because Esav was a very hairy fellow, Yaakov was very smooth-skinned, had no hair, and your father will come in, he'll feel you, he'll think that you're Esav, and you'll be able to get the blessings before Yaakov, before Esav. And so happens. Yaakov goes in, his father says, do I hear the sound, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the arms are the arms of Esav. And he blesses him, and as soon as he finishes the blessing, the revolving door turns, Esav comes in, Yaakov goes out, and Yitzchak says, what did I just do? I thought I just blessed you. Esav is furious and angry. And that's the story of what happened. So before we get to the questions of the story, let's first put things in perspective here. Things in perspective is number one, let's recognize that Rivka and her husband are married now for 68 years. I'm sorry, not sorry, 68, 84 years. That means the children were born when they were 64 years old. They're, this is 20 years later. They're, I'm sorry, they got married. The children when they were 64 years old, yes. And so Rifka was at least 84 years old at this point. Okay? So they're at least 84 years old because Yitzchak is 123, so we do the math. So they're married for a nice amount of time. It wasn't that they're just new, fresh, trying to figure out how the relationship is going to work. So they knew how to communicate with one another, we can suppose. And not only that, we can suppose that these people were holy people, and they knew to, uh, had discussions with one another. And if Rivka believed that Yaakov should get the blessing, she would have told him to get the blessing. There's a reason that something's happening here. Secondly, who is Rivka? Rivka is not a person who is a deceiver, not like the brother Lavan who we're going to read about next week's Torah reading. But Rivka was in a person that we know that in last week's Torah reading, she was picked to be Isaac's match because of her kindness, because of her gentleness. She was a person, she was able to meet any person and help them from whatever it may be. She was a person to help, she was a person to give water. She never had a bad word to say about anybody. And over here we see a person, Rivka, that all of a sudden she's taking the blessings and showing favoritism. So this whole story, the perspective of it, helps us understand it. And therefore, when we have this question, when we see the ideas that are happening, that they have a good relationship, she's a good person. The Abarbanel, one of the great Spanish commentators, asks the question, and a question which is, why was she so convinced that Jacob should get the blessings? And why did she have to do it in this deceptious way? Why couldn't Esav get the blessings? And if she believed that Yaakov should get the blessings, walk over to your husband and tell him, give the blessings to Yaakov. I heard you say to Esav, you want to give him blessings. I think that Yaakov should get the blessings. Why couldn't she just say that? And the Barbanel comes with a fascinating answer. And this is based on Nachmanides. And he says as follows. If you recall in last week's Torah reading, Rebecca, actually in the beginning of this week's Torah reading, Rebecca is pregnant. And she realizes the pregnancy is not the way it's supposed to be. She doesn't tell her husband about it. And there's different reasons why she didn't tell her husband about it. But she didn't tell her husband about it. She goes to seek out a scholar who happens to be Shane. And she asks him, what am I to do? When I walk by a synagogue, there's somebody coming out. When I walk by the opposite idolatry, also I feel the baby kicking. Which one is it? Is he like this or is he like that? I don't want a schizophrenic. What kind of kid am I going to have? Let him make up his mind. Idolatry or God? What does the, the prophet tell her? What does the great scholar tell her? 
You're going to have two nations. And there are two nations in your belly. You're going to have twins. But he concludes, But the better one is going to be the younger one. She knew that Jacob was the better one. She knew that Jacob was going to get the blessings because that's what the prophet told her 20 years ago. That the younger one is going to be the one in charge. So she knew already that Yaakov was supposed to get the blessings. And therefore, in this case, she wasn't going to go over and say, by the way, I got a prophet that told me 20 years ago. She didn't want to disturb her husband and tell him about this negative about her child. She didn't want to pain her husband to know that he has an older child that's not going to be blessed. And because of that, she went along and she made this deceptive way that Yaakov should get the blessings because she knew Yaakov has to get the blessings and not Esau. And she didn't want to tell her husband about Esau's deception or Esau, who he really was, as we'll get to in a moment. And because of that, she did this deceiving way. This is the simple interpretation of we can answer all our questions in this simple interpretation. But let's take it a little bit deeper. And let's take it from the Hasidic and Kabbalistic perspective and see that there's more to the story here. Because over here, we see something interesting. If Rivka was only intended to take the blessings from Esau and give it to Yaakov, that was her intention. The question still is, she was Esau's mom too. Shouldn't Esau get a blessing? Even though she knew, and even though she knew all the wonderful things that were supposed to happen, and even though the prophet told her, but shouldn't she hope that her older child also gets a blessing? On the contrary, if you believe that your youngest son is going to be blessed anyway, let the older one get a blessing. Maybe he'll be able to own up. Maybe he'll stand up to his opportunities. Why didn't she allow that? That means there must be something, intri- something intriguing within the actual plan that Rivka did that was necessary for this to happen. And with this we turn to the Hasidic perspective on it. And therefore we go to two things that we see that give us a little bit of an insight into the entire Torah reading and to this entire episode. And the first of all is the beginning at the end of this week's Torah reading. At the end of this week's Torah reading, after Yaakov is about to be killed by his brother Esav, she says, go away. Go to my brother Lovin until Esav calms down. And the Torah uses the, fa- the, fa- the following terminology, and this is the last time that Rivka's name is mentioned in the Torah. And, Yitz- and Rivka sends her, and the, uh, the terminology is that Rivka sends... I'm sorry, Yitzchak sent Yaakov to Lavan, the son of Besuel, the brother of Rivka, the mother of Yaakov and Esav. Okay? So who, where did he go to? Yaakov went to Besuel, who is the brother of Rivka, the mother of Yaakov and Esav. Let me ask you, didn't we just finish this whole story where Rivka connived this whole type of plan that she is the mother of both? Why does the Torah have to tell me that she is the mother of both? If we're just finished talking the whole story, how she was with Yaakov, she was with Esau, I made sure the whole blessings back and forth, and the Torah comes to tell me she was the mother of both. I don't know that. So some want to say, because she was actually protecting both. She was protecting Esau as well. Because if Yaakov would have been killed by Esau, Yaakov's descendants would take revenge on Esau. As we see later on, an episode that happens later on at the end of the Torah reading, as we're going to talk about it later as well, in the Torah reading of Ayechid and the book of Genesis, when Yaakov is buried, Esav comes along to protest, 
He says, hey, hey, who gives you the right to bury there? Naftali goes, runs to get the document. Meanwhile, Dun, who's a deaf son, comes, kills Asaph, and Asaph actually dies the same day. So we see that there was some type of revenge that there was going to be, and she prophesied it. So over here, she was protecting both of them. The mother of Yaakov and Asaph, that she was protecting both of them. But there's another idea, another insight you can say. And the other insight is that not only was she protecting them, but when you read the Torah reading, you may think, hey, she's taking from one and giving to another. On the contrary. She was the mother of both and she cared about both. And when she was taking from one, it wasn't she was taking from one. She was making sure that both of them, she was making sure that both of them should be able to have the blessing. How? But she was in the best interest for both of them. That she was the mother of both of them, that she had the best interest for both of them. You just read a whole story, which looks like she was taking away from one and the other. She's the mother of Jacob and Asaph. She cared for both, and she was hoping the blessing would go for both. How? We'll find out. Another interesting thing we find is as follows. In next week's Torah reading, at the end of the story of Shechem, where Dina gets captured, the Torah tells us about Devorah, who was the nurse of Rivka, the babysitter of Rivka, if you want to call her, nurse of Rivka. And she was buried in Basel. And it says that Yaakov buried her, made a monument for her, and called the name of the place Alon Bachus, the palm tree of crying. So what's going on over here? After the whole episode was Dina, so they had, Devorah was the one that was helping Yaakov with the kids. And Devorah dies, and he makes a funeral for her, the babysitter. But since when do we find in Judaism that we mourn for a babysitter. It's not related to the family. Okay, so you buried her, finished. But he mourned her, he sat shiva, and he made a monument for her. What's going on here? In some commentaries, Nachmanides explained that actually, that who is this person that died? What happened at that time? Why was he sitting shiva? Because his mother died. And the reason why he doesn't mention about Rivka's passing in the Torah is not to embarrass Rivka, that nobody was there at her funeral. Why? Yitzchak was blind, so he couldn't come out to the funeral, he wasn't healthy. Yaakov was by Lava. So who was the only one that took care of her funeral? It was Asaph. That evil Asaph came all the way from Adam. And he was the one that took care of his mother's health, he was the healthcare proxy, he did a funeral, he was the executor, he took care of her, all the stuff. Imagine that. Yaakov wasn't even there. Yitzchak wasn't there. Who was the one that did it? So therefore the Torah doesn't want to mention it loud. But at the end of the day, it tells us something very interesting. That what was Yaakov doing at the time? He was burying, he was mourning for his mother. But not only was he mourning for his mother, but what do you see even clearer? This same mother, who so to speak stole the blessings from the son that was intended to get the blessings. Who was the one that buried her? That son. You think if they would have had such a bad relationship, he would have came back from Adam to bury her. It must be that the relationship between the two of them was not that bad that we can understand that they were getting along and he was the one taking care of her. So it must be that even Asaph himself understood, recognized, and realized, and appreciated that his mother had his best intention. How did his mother have his best intention? Is Let's find out. And how do we see this? Is by the first five words that are mentioned in this Torah reading when it describes who Asaph was. The Torah describes that there's a Yaakov and there's an Asaph. Yaakov was a person who studied and sat in the tent and dwelled and studied Torah. 
And who was Esav? He was a person who knew how to hunt, a person of the field. Now what do you think about a kid who at 13 years old drops out of school, goes into hunting? You wouldn't probably say he's the best kid on the block. You wouldn't want his kid, your kids to be friends maybe with his kids. You would say that this kid is probably doing things which are on the, on the pale of what may be correct or not. And over here, who was Asaph? He actually was this kind of guy. Asaph was a person who everything he did was extreme. He learned how to be a hunter. He was the best hunter. He was a hunter that from this side, he was able to say that he was able, he always got on target. He was so good on target that when he saw Nimrod wearing the special garment, he shot an arrow, got him, because it was a special garment that Nimrod had and he was a good hunter, that this garment all the animals were afraid of. So you wore this garment, the animals were attracted, you were able to hunt them easily. And that's why he saw Nimrod, shot an arrow, first shot, killed him, got him. He was a person who stole women from others as well because he was an extreme in whatever he did. Extreme personality. He knew how to be extreme. He knew how to hunt very well. What was it over here? But at the same time, he was such an extreme individual. Extreme in both ends. He was an extreme hunter, extreme uh, wild guy. But at the same time, he also had an extreme refined part of him. The Talmud talks about, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel says, if we can only have the respect for our parents, like Esav, we would be doing good. What does it mean? Esav was an individual, to go back to the story of the hunting clothes. Esav hit target. He got Nimrod, first shot. Gets these clothing, that he was going to use them to hunt. Because if he uses us to hunt, he's the best hunter in town, he rules the world. He puts on the clothing, he feels their sense of spirituality, spirituality in them. Because whose clothing was this? Whose garments were these? These were garments that Adam and Chava wore while they were in Gan Eden in the Garden of Eden and God made them garments. And God said, because you ate from the tree of knowledge, get out of here. But they would get naked. So God made them garments that they should get dressed. Adam and Eve had these garments and they gave it to Cain because then Cain was then sent around the world to become wandering after he killed his brother Hevel. Cain, son Lemach, got it. The Lemach and Nimrod killed him and that's how he got it. Now Esau puts on these garments, he feels the spiritual connection to them. He said, this is not for me. This is for my father. And he kept them in his closet. And any time he would go into his father and serve his father and help his father, he put on these garments in honor of his father. Who was the one in charge to protect, to watch these garments? Was his mother. He was a fellow that he got himself, he didn't just go in and help his father. He prepared himself. He dedicated himself. He found special garments. An extreme personality. Extremely wild, but extremely sensitive. What does this tell us? Look at Esau's perogony. The people that came from Esau. Name them. Uncles. You know the commentary, the Aramaic commentary that you have on the Chumash? Yeah. That's, he was a convert from Esau's grandchildren. Great grandchildren. And it says that Unculus wrote the entire, the Alter Rebbe said, the first Chabad Rebbe said, the entire Aramaic translation, Unculus wrote it with divine intuition. Who else was Unculus's great grandchildren? Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was also from the converts. 
And it says that Moshe was looking and he saw Rabbi Akiva explaining the Torah and he was jealous of Rabbi Akiva, a convert from Esau. Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir, who every Mishnah, if there's no author's name on the Mishnah, it's Rabbi Meir. And most of the halachas are like him. Shmai and Aftalian, the two great sages who were the teachers of Hillel and Shammai, they were also the te- from, Uncle, from Esau. So look at this. Because of his extreme sensitivity to spirituality, he was able to achieve that his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, his children that come from him became converts. And not just converts. They became leaders in the Jewish people. In contrast, just an uh, interesting point, Yishmael, no converts are from him. You don't find any place where we would find that there's any converts from Yishmael. At least in the spiritual uh, chain that we know of, so to speak, that made it into great leadership. So this tells us a little bit, number one, about who is this Esav. And it gives us a little bit of a picture about Esav, which seemingly has this conundrum in him. He has this dichotomy. On one hand, he is this violent, evil, and he's the paradigm of all evil. But on the other hand, he's this sensitive, spiritual, extreme individual. So which one is he? And this is the challenge that every single one of us has, is this ace of type of personality. Every human being who's healthy has these two type of personalities. We have a passion for things. We get excited about things. But then we also have the reserved part of ourselves. And part of being a healthy person is that we know how to take the passions, concise them, use them, utilize them, and put them into perspective. A person who has no passion, no excitement in life, might as well not be born. A person who is only passion with no limitations, things will just explode. Everything he touches will break. And therefore, what is it telling us over here? Is that the way God created the universe is the same idea. In the words of the Kabbalah, it's a great light with small vessels. When God created the universe at first, it says the land was toyu vavoyu. It was emptiness. But the word toyu, which means chaos and lack of order. Asaph comes from the level of chaos. In a level of chaos, things are so supreme. But the problem is they're so great, there's no channel for them. There's no way to direct them. And because of that, they have so much passion, but there's no way to direct it. The bottom line is, we have to be able to direct it. And therefore, the difficulty over here for Esau was, he had all this passion, but there was no direction for him. The root of Esau, the source of where Esau came from, was in the world of chaos, which is higher than the world of order. And But at the same time, he was not in the world of order. So he could have been from a higher source, but because it didn't translate into practicality, he was still a wild guy. We see this from the end of the Torah reading, when we were just mentioned before about the story of the episode that's mentioned in the book of Genesis at the end, where Esau is brought to burial, where Yaakov is brought to burial, and Esau tries to protest it. And he comes with a whole army against him. And all of a sudden, they send Naphtali to Egypt to go get the document that Esau sold, the cave of the patriarchs, because Esau's argument was, Leia's buried there, you got your side of the family, they're twins, I get my portion, I get my plot. And he said, no, you sold your plot for a bowl of soup, of lentil soup. And Esau said, eh, go prove it to me, get me the document. And I sent Naphtali, because Naphtali was blessed that he should be able to run very quickly. Naphtali went to get it. 
And all of a sudden, Don, who had a son, Chushim, who was deaf and dumb, he said, what's going on over here? How come my grandfather's not being buried? So they pointed, it's that guy's fault. So he went and chopped his head off. And it says that his head off, hand went rolling into the cave of the patriarchs. So if you look today in the patri- cave of the patriarchs, there's not only eight, four couples buried there, but there's eight people buried there and a head, which is the head of Asaph rolled to the rolled inside into the burial place of Yitzchak. So if you look at Esav, what happened? At the end of his life, he was split. His head was in one place and his passion was in another place. What part of him was buried in the cave of the patriarchs? His head, the type of order, the sensitivity that he had. What part of him was outside the cave of the patriarchs? Was his passion, which was for the wild stuff that he was doing. And this is where we come to the argument, the debate between Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca spoke. They had a wonderful relationship. But they had a difference in how we educate and what should be done. Rivka believed and understood that if we give the blessings to Esau and there's passion, there's chaos, but there's no order, where are those blessings going to go to? They're going to be disrupted, destroyed. They're going to be entangled in every type of wild mishagas that this kid is involved in. Therefore, we have to give him a guide. We have to get him a mentor. We have to teach him how to control himself. And once he controls himself, then he'll be able to have an impact and show him that these blessings work. Therefore, we're going to give the blessings to Yaakov. Yaakov will then preserve the blessings for Esau. Train Esau to be able to enjoy it. And then finally, Esau will be able to get it. But what happens is, Yitzchak says, I want to give him the blessings. And Rivka's argument was, you can't give him the blessings, it's going to ruin it. Yitzchak says, maybe if I give him the blessings, it will be so strong and so powerful, it's going to change him. It will be showered upon him that will change, that it will overcome his passions. But Rivka was a mother. And Rivka understood cultivation. A father just gives, as we know the difference between the male and the female. The male gives and the female cultivates. And therefore he only understood in giving. He didn't understand cultivation. And Rivka understood cultivation. And therefore Rivka said, no, this boy needs to be cultivated first in order to receive it. You're going to pour in him billions of dollars, it's going to go into the garbage. He'll spend it tomorrow. He won't utilize the blessings good. Let us give him a guide. Let us get him a mentor. Let us get him somebody, a teacher. He'll be able to utilize the blessings in the right way. And therefore, he gave him and understood and said, this is the way we live life. The same idea is that we find in everything in life. There was a great scholar, give an example. The Mittler Rebbe gives this example of a great scholar by the name of Allah ben Dudaya. We mentioned this story always on Yom Kippur. Elazar ben Dudayu was a fellow who he was an extreme fellow. Anything he did was extreme. He decided that he's going to abrogate every single law in the Torah. And not only that, he's going to make sure that whatever he does was to the extreme. So therefore he went to the four corners of the earth, if you were to call it in those days, to be able to meet any harlot he can. And finally he came to one woman and he said... I want to be with you. And she said, nah. A person like this who will never be forgiven, I don't want to be with you. When he heard that, he said, what? I won't be forgiven? He turned to the heavens. He turned to the mountains. Who can forgive me? Nobody will forgive me. 
And with that, he put his head between his knees, cried and cried and cried until his soul left his body. And at that moment, the voice of heaven came out and said, Lucky is a Lazar ben Dudaya, who he has acquired the world to come in one moment. His repentance was accepted. Kabbalah explains an interesting thing. The Arizal said that a Lazar ben Dudaya was a reincarnation of Yochanan Koyen Gadl. There was a king, there was a high priest, his name was Yochanan Koyen Gadl. He was from the Hashmanoi family. He was for 80 years, he was a Koyen Gadl. That means he was a righteous person because they make it into the Holy of Holies in and out. You couldn't be some Shmojo. He was a guy that was a quality individual for 80 years, he served as a high priest. And it says at the end of his life, he turned and he became a heretic. This Elazar ben Dudaya was the opposite. His whole life was a heretic. And the last moment of his life, he became righteous. Because he was a reincarnation of Rabbi Yechel, of Yechel and Kain Gadol. He had to make up for that last moment of his life. But be it as it may, what was the problem of Yechel and Kain, of, of Elazar ben Dudaya? Elazar ben Dudaya was an extremist. Either he did the sins extreme or repented extreme. There was no middle ground by him. Rivka said, this is not a healthy type of life. You can't live a life in extremes. You need to have a balance. Life is about balancing chaos and order, putting it together. You can't be all over the place. You've got to be channeled. You've got to have your energy in one place. And therefore she said, Elazar ben Dudaya, extreme is nice, extreme holiness, but it doesn't last. It needs to be able to be grounded. You need to be grounded. You need to have order. And you can have all the extremes you want, but if you're not grounded, it's not going to help you. We say a story about the Ramah. The Ramah's Ramosh Yisrael, who was the commentator on the Torah, one of the greatest Ashkenazic uh, codifiers of Jewish law. He, um, he passed away on Lag Bomer when he was 33 years old. Uh, on Lag Bomer when he was 33 years old. So 33rd day of the Omer, 33 years old, and the rabbi who was giving him his eulogy wanted to give 33 great things about the Ramosh Yisrael. 33 different great things. And he came to 32. And he was looking for a 33rd. So he asked anybody in the crowd, if there's anybody that can cheer something, to be able to say, to give, um, to give a eulogy for the Ramah. And finally, one fellow got up and said that the Ramah, Ramosh Shirelish, every Purim, after Purim, people were a little inebriated after Purim. He would go around telling, reminding people to wash Negelvasar, to wash their hands before they daven Mayrev. What in essence he was telling them was that they should don't forget the Daf Mayrif. What was the Ramah saying over here? What was Ramosha Sorelish teaching the people? It's ex- great to get inebriated, to have extreme, to be, have extreme joy. But you also have to remember there's things that have to be done. There's order. Mayrif has to be done. Just because you're in an extreme state of happiness, it doesn't mean that everything falls to the wayside. You're going to be an extreme. But you also have to remember, bring that chaos into order. They say an interesting story that once the previous Rebbe, when he was still before, he was, I think, actually, uh, maybe when his Rebbe, very, when he was in his younger years, he was fabringing. He was having a fabringing with the students in the yeshiva. And they were very much enjoying it. And they didn't want it to end. But the previous Rebbe had his watch on the table, so he should know when it was time to dava mincha. So he shouldn't miss the mincha. The students wanted a fabringing to continue. So one of the kids turned the clock back a little bit so it shouldn't be the right time so they think that he has more time. The previous Rebbe noticed what happened. 
So he turned to the assistant on the side and he tells him, and he says as follows, he says, listen here. He says, um, he tells him, he says to be able to, uh, <clears throat> and he tells him, he says, listen, to be able to, Atmos, he says, the greatest Kabbalistic teachings, anything we can talk about the Fabrengen, infinite, but they're not real. I mean, they're real, but they're not reality in this world. Mincha is the only reality. The reality comes before the surreal. So they're, they're all surreal. They're all wonderful. It's great, but it's not reality. It's a big difference. So the bottom line is that we can get all excited and we can have all the different things that we talk about, it, but if it's not reality, that's what the Ramah was telling the people. You can be inebriated, excited about the joy of Purim, but you've got to be grounded. Rivka was telling Yitzchak, we've got to be grounded. He could be all the excitement, Esav, but if he's not grounded, it's not going to help him. And therefore, the Mittler Rebbe, the son of the first Chabad Rebbe, explains that what's the reason why Yitzchak loved Esav? Because Yitzchak was a level of Gevura. Gevura means strength, which comes from the world of chaos. And because he related more to, to Esav, so therefore he said, I'm going to give it to Esav. That's who I can talk to. And, that because from he, and that's why we know that when Mashiach comes, it's, we're going to say, Yitzchak is our forefather. Because when the Mashiach comes, the world of chaos will be revealed. Because Yitzchak came from that world. So Yitzchak was able to relate to Esav. But Rivka said, no, we're living in a different reality. We're right here. We're now in this world. And therefore Yaakov has to be the one to get the blessings. The interesting thing is that when you look at the end of the Torah reading, before Yaakov leaves to love his house, Yaakov call, Yitzchak calls over his son Yaakov and gives him blessings again. If he was, That means that Yitzchak was intending to give Yaakov blessings anyway. But what Yitzchak intended to do to Yaakov was to give him the blessings that he got from Abraham and that he got that the land of Israel and everything about his children. And he was going to give the materialistic blessings to Esau, like he gave to Yaakov initially. But what happened? Instead, Rivka orchestrated that Yaakov should be the preserver. He's going to be the cultivator. He received the blessings from Yitzchak. He's going to hold on to it until Esau's ready. And then he got his own set of blessings at the end. The problem is, that's all fine and well. But did it all work? Was Rivka correct? Did Yaakov ever change Esau? Did Yaakov ever do that effect? Was he ever able to do it? And yes, because the next week's Torah reading, after Yaakov leaves Lovin's home, he says, he sends, he hears that Esau is coming against him with 400 men or 400 soldiers. And Yaakov sends to him, blessings and treats and gifts and servants and maidservants. He sends him a whole entourage of things that he sends to him. And he keeps on telling him, so to my master, Esau, so your servant Yaakov said, and I came to you and I'm telling you why I came here. But he sends them an interesting message. He says, by the way, if you want to know why I'm late, it was because I was busy, stuck by loving for 21 years. Late for what? You ran away from the guy. What do you mean you're late? What's he excusing his lateness for? And in fact, what was he excusing his lateness for is because, yes, I was busy doing the 613 commandments. I was busy by loving, but you know why I was busy? I was busy because I should have came earlier. I am your mentor. I am the one to give you the blessings that my father gave you. And therefore, it came time that we have to pay up the debt. I have to give you that blessing. And therefore he told him, my master, my servant, and so on. In fact, here's a little complicated one, but it's a nice numerology, Kabbalistic numerology. 
believe Yitzchak, the father of the Rebbe, said, if you take the word Yitzchak, the word Yitzchak has the same numeric value as 208. 208. 208, you follow math with me over here for a moment? 208 is eight times God's name. Eight times Shemavaya, God's name. That means eight times 26 is 208. The name Yaakov is 182. 182 is seven times 26. Okay? So Yitzchak is eight times 26. Yaakov is seven times 26. Where'd the last one go? How come Yaakov didn't get it? Now, what happens? When, when, everything, when, Yaakov, when Yitzchak gives everything over to his children, he gave him Esav also. Esav is the numeric value of 376. What's 376? 376 is one time 26, and the other seven are the numeric value of Tameh impurity. So the one tummy, the one, one, the one twenty-six that was left over, who had it, was Esav. So Yitzchak had eight, Yaakov had seven, Esav had one. But what is it? What did, Esav, what did Yitzchak want? But Esav was still a Jew. He was a Jew that had God's name in him. He now had to get rid of those seven levels of impurity. How did he get rid of those seven levels of impurity? This week, next week's Torah reading, when Yaakov meets Esav, he bows in front of him seven times. Why does he bow in front of him seven times? Removing those seven levels of impurity that Esav had and giving him the seven levels of godliness that he has within himself. Transformed Esav. But when does that full come to fruition? That's the time when Mashiach comes. But the bottom line is, what we see from this, is that when Yaakov and Esav meet, what are they doing? The cultivator, the mentor, the preserver is now giving the blessing to the person that was holding it firm. Because Esav on his own would have destroyed it. He wasn't able to take it. What do we see from here? That Yaakov and Esav didn't just stop their relationship then. Yaakov and Esav kept on going their relationship. Not only kept going their relationship from then, but the relationship is still continuing today. The relationship is still continuing today that any time that we have any type of evil inclination where it's the ace of within us, the world of chaos, the extremism that comes within, we still have to cultivate it, we have to preserve it and use the extremism and channel it, take the Yaakov and channel it. Until the time, when it comes the time of the coming of Mashiach, as we say in the prayers every single day, the when then ace of himself comes, to Yaakov and recognizes, yes, Hashem Echad, Echad, God is one. Why? Because this is the point that every, every single Jew, there's a spark. It could be layered with seven layers of impurity, like Esau. But there's a spark, there's a godly spark that's there. And all it needs is the Yaakov to seven times bang on it, transform it and change it. And then you have the true revelation. And that's why when Mashiach comes, Mashiach then will be revealed the world, the light of chaos, the greatness of chaos. Right now we can't handle it. Right now it's, we need a world of order. Now right now we're in a Yaakov time. Now we have to develop it. We have to preserve it. We have to mentor it. We have to be able to catalyst. We have to be able to control the enthusiasm, the excitement, the extremism. Until that time that the extremism itself recognizes I'm on the same team. We're not fighting against each other. We're part of the same team. And that's what Mashiach comes that's the revelation of Mashiach, that even Esau comes to identify the greatness of Yaakov. 
that even Esau realizes, thanks, Yaakov, and said, yes, you preserved that blessing for me. Now let's go enjoy it together.